Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. The wonderful Mona Simpson, who has herself been called one of the most accomplished writers of her generation, will be um, interviewing um, Michelle Hunnevin, and um, so will Michelle Seeley be taking questions about the character from a professional point of view. What a great show you have in store for yourselves tonight. Please give a warm round of applause. Hey, what a great, great night. I'm really glad to be here. Michelle Seeley is, is a psychotherapist in private practice, and she works with teens, adults, and couples. She's on the core faculty of the Pacific Gestalt Institute, and she supervises interns at the Southern California's Counseling Center. Her professional interests include shame resilience. I, I love that. I've decided my professional interests are going to include shame resilience as well. <laughs> the overlaps between Buddhist psychology and relational gestalt, and how the use of story and metaphor support therapeutic change. Michelle Hunovan is here, and we're all here to celebrate her fourth great novel. Her first novel, Round Rock, was called by the LA Times a texture drama of individual and cultural history from a writer of moral nerve, sharp wit, and uncommon generosity. Those qualities run throughout her work. Of her second novel, James Lind, the Canadian novelist Anne Michaels says, James Lind is a blessing of a book. Hunnevin proves again that forgiveness has a wisdom of its own and that real joy can grow in the compost of failure and frailties. Hunnevin's characters embrace each other in all their broken-hearted striving. They renew our buried hope that we may all be loved as life finds us, imperfect, lost, blameworthy, full of good intentions. Blame, her last novel, I bet everyone in this room has already read. Um, it was a finalist for the Book Critics National Book Critics Circle Award and a huge bestseller. Of, of the new novel, Off Course, the Los Angeles Times has, had already called it a finely wrought novel. The New Yorker says her landscape descriptions are erotic and the erotic scenes have near hallucinatory power. But my favorite reviews are actually from online critics. Is um, Philip Schwarzenberger here by any chance? Okay, good. <laughs> he wrote, cool read. Beautiful descriptions of nature, nature with a capital N. Sex is spread out over the scenery. <laughs> Resolved beautifully. <laughs> How's that for a, a five-star review? Um, here's my very favorite. I inhaled off course. It broke my heart. It will break the heart of anyone who's ever been in love with the wrong person. 
I read and reread and walked all over Michelle's manuscript of Off Course as it was being composed. If fiction writers could collaborate, I would ask her to be my partner, forgive me, Jim, <laughs> and we would hang out our shingle. We talk about scenes, characters, the trajectories of their lives. Our fingerprints are all over each other's page proofs. And yet, after all those many, many readings, when I finished the bound book, as I did just yesterday, I felt absolutely in awe. Here's Michelle Hunvin. Thank you, Carrie, and thank you, Mona. Thank you, everybody, for coming out tonight. It's so stirring to see everybody here, some old friends, my yoga teacher. I know, pull my chest <laughs> off my waist. Come on, everybody, <laughs> lift it up a little bit. <laughs> I see various people that have given off course a boost in the media. I want to thank you for that and also for giving all books a boost in the media this time, this weird time in publishing. It's really wonderful that there are still people that you know, dedicate themselves to it. And I'm thrilled to be at Skylight, one of the greatest surviving neighborhood bookstores and a really important landmark in my life. I don't know if everybody knows it, but this is where I met my husband, Jim. <laughs> I was reading from my second novel, James Land. We've now been married eight and a half years. You know, writing a novel is a long, slow slog in solitude. But I've been very lucky in that after my first novel, I became friends with Mona Simpson. It was when I was writing James Land that she first asked to see drafts of my work. And I remember I sent her most of James Land and she called wanting the last 50 pages. I said, I have it, but it's not yet all in sentences. She said, you have two hours. <laughs> I got those 50 pages into sentences in two hours. And all novelists should be so lucky. If you've read Mona's lyric, wildly intelligent and beautiful novels, you can recognize the enormous complement of her interest. Casebook, her latest, <clears throat> is a comic, devastating and virtuosic novel that sews together the boy detective yarn with a very adult love story, the coming of age novel with the comic book. The young narrator, Miles Adler-Rich, has the engaging, wi widely ranging voice that many readers have already compared to Huck Finn and Holden Caulfield. As usual, Mona hits a vital cultural nerve. The further Miles snoops, um, the further that Miles snooping takes him into the dark corners of his mother's most private life, the more we readers understand what it means to be human in Los Angeles in the 2000 teens. 
writing novels, stories, or short essays for the LA Times has been far more amusing, far more challenging, because Mona always asks the deeper, more difficult questions. And after years of intense literary conversation with her, okay, sometimes literary arguments, I'm a better writer and a better person. So thank you, Mona, very much for all your help. I'm going to read tonight from Off Course, starting on page 180. That's 62% of the way through the book. <laughs> In 1981, a 28-year-old woman named Cressida Hartley moves up to her parents' mountain cabin in the southern Sierras to write her PhD dissertation in economics. She is swiftly distracted. There are men up there. She has a fast, fun fling with the owner of the lodge, but then she gets involved with a carpenter. A married carpenter. Quinn Morrow's wife lives down the hill where she's working and minding the kids while he's doing fine finished carpentry on the cabins up, up in the trees. Um, they have two kids, an eight-year-old boy and a daughter, Annette, about to graduate. So long as they're up on the mountain, Quinn and Cress are careful to keep it casual and agree to end things when Quinn's job up there ends. It does end, and Quinn leaves the mountain to move back home with his family. Cress also leaves the mountain to a friend's house so she can be close to her job at a country club, make a pile of money, and leave the area. But she and Quinn start seeing each other again. One day, after work, um, Cress drives to the small city nearby to a grocery store and calls her roommate from the wall phone there to see if the household needs anything in particular. Quinn called, her roommate says. He says it's urgent. Call him back. Cress didn't recognize the number. Then again, she'd never called Quinn at any number. Wanting more privacy than this public wall phone afforded, she crossed the parking lot to a dusty glass booth. A woman with a gruff, low voice answered, and when Cress asked for Quinn, the woman set down the phone without another word. Where are you? Cress said. My mom's, said Quinn. Look, Cress, I've made a decision. Okay, she said, and wondered what decision needed to be made. I'm going to get a divorce. This was the first time he'd used the word to her. D, divorce. In that instant, a new landscape unfurled in all directions. The very fields and precincts they'd vowed never to enter, where innocence would be hurt and she'd be implicated. Terror was her first reaction. Terror, then intense interest. She echoed him with her own pronunciation. Divorce, Quinn, really? Who knew he'd ever consider it? Good. Maybe they could spend the night together again. Be together out in the open. Take trips. Santa Barbara. Mexico. It's been a long time coming, he said. Yes, and the divorces she knew about, of her friend's parents and her parents' friends, took a long time to happen, too. Lawyers were involved and hard to get signatures, court appearances, shouting and sobbing. Her mother spent hours with Francine Davis, listening, soothing, advising. Francine's daughter Jenny was Cress's good friend, and the two had crouched in the hall to hear Francine weep in her bedroom. 
Crest recalled to a sleepover at the father's new apartment, the empty beige rooms and mothball smell. Even if Quinn passed through all that tumult, who's to say that he and she would care for each other on the far side? Are you there, Cress? said Quinn. I tried being home. I was out of my mind. I drove up here today and talked to my mom. I told her everything. His mother, who'd clonked the phone on some table just now? That's good, Quinn, that you talked. I'm going to divorce Sylvia, he said, and marry you. Oh, now, she said. I mean, one thing at a time. Let's not, even before I left the mountain crest, I knew. She stood up straight, nose level with the punch pad on the payphone. She had been disciplined. She had not allowed her affections to range so far afield. She'd held herself in check. Marry? She never let herself imagine it. Where would they live? And what about her friends? Her Pasadena friends from childhood. What would they think of him or he of them? If you will have me, Cress. Are you there? If you will have me. The tremble in his voice hit low like sex. If it ever comes to that, she said quickly, yes, yes, of course, because it was urgent to reassure him and to keep the matter open so she could think it over at leisure in private because the slightest hesitation here might frighten him off. She wanted, at the very least, to prolong the incredible flattery of his offer, for it, it was an offer, wasn't it? And who had ever wanted her so much? Saying yes to him, yes of course, in an easy offhand contingent way, bought her time. Also, she was stunned, perhaps even in shock, the way people are when they win a lottery. They have to sit down, and sometimes they keel right over. <laughs> she sagged against the booth, scratched graffiti glass wall, the greasy receiver pressed against her ear. But so much has to happen before we can even really, I mean, you might change your mind a hundred. I've never been more sure of anything in my life. His beautiful, low voice coursed directly into her blood, or I never would have spoke of it. Okay, she was breathless. Okay, Quinn, he would have to be sure for both of them then. And even if you won't have me, I can't stay married to Sylvia. That's over. I'm done. The sun had dunked behind the industrial buildings across the street. Long shadows stretched over the asphalt. What did your mom say? that I have to do what I have to do, whatever makes me happy. You told her about me? She knows there's someone. And Sylvia, have you talked to her? I won't until Annette graduates, he says. I won't take away from Annette's big day. Oh, so nothing irrevocable had happened after all, except that he had asked her to marry him and she had said yes. She told him yes when he wasn't in any real position to ask. Look me up after you've done all the hard stuff. That's what she should have said. But it was too late. She'd already answered. He was still talking. He was dying to see her. He wished they could meet right now. He wanted to hold her, to lay her down. His term, lay her down. It came from a country song, and his use of it embarrassed her, especially now. She didn't like to talk about sex. She preferred to be more oblique and private about it. But he couldn't see her, he was saying. Not tonight. He was tied up. 
There was a big family dinner at his brother's house. Sylvia and the kids would be there, and he was taking his mother. He'd see Cress tomorrow. He'd phone her at work. They'd figure everything out. He loved her. She knew that, didn't she? He loved her more than anything else on earth. They'd have a long, happy life together. Okay, she whispered. Okay, Quinn. Walking back across the parking lot, exuberance and something like triumph welled in her chest. So much still had to happen, but who knew he'd come this far? He'd told his mother. Of course, telling Sylvia would make it real in a way he probably didn't anticipate. Even Cress knew this. Sylvia would not say, whatever makes you happy. <laughs> he really should not have proposed till he talked to Sylvia, and not over the phone. Cress had made a mistake too, she thought, in answering him so quickly she should have put him off, or said something even more equivocal. Let's talk about it when the time comes, or let's not talk about it over the phone. But what she said wasn't so terrible, if it ever comes to that. Despite her trepidation, jubilance kept bursting through. He did love her, she'd known it, of course, but hadn't permitted the words to form. Her own reticence, the stringency with which she'd held herself back, those thick old leather harness straps had loosened once they came off the mountain and now had fallen away. She could let herself go or could no longer hold back. Of course she loved him. Aloud, love rippled retrospectively through their time together like a frisky zephyr, ruffling memories, sweetening and brightening all that had passed between them. She had been so firm and practical. She had built barriers of his faults, never once imagining marriage. Somehow, she'd played it just right. She felt clever and carefully ecstatic, as if she'd coaxed a bull elk to nuzzle corn from her palm. Um, so first of all, I'd love to ask both the novelist and the psychoanalyst whether this is indeed a love story. We've talked so many times about how, how many the words there are for love. Is this, is this actually a love story or is this a story of something else? Is this a story of obsession or... Let's hear from Michelle first. Well, um, hmm. in my opinion, not really. It's a, it's a story about what people think love is, what they imagine love is, what they mythologize love to be. Um, the great, passionate, wonderful, unattainable, you know, obsessive love. Is it really love? I don't think it's really love. What do you think, Michelle? I, I think what you're saying has a lot of truth in it. I also, I think she's on the verge, I mean the potential of love is part of what's so exciting to her and so she's on the verge of this what's possible, what's possible for the whole novel and so I wouldn't say it is love but it's this promise, it's just like, and that's a big part of the beginning of any love so I I would say maybe that, that can be a big part of love. So what would you Michelle, Michelle therapist, Michelle, what would you, what would you do if, how would you work with Cress if she were in fact your patient? <laughs> well, I think, you know, when, uh, 
when you were reading, one of the things you said was, he's going to have to be sure for the both of us. That just isn't a good way to <laughs> <laughs> proceed with your life, to let someone else be sure for you. So I think that's where we would start with those kinds of things where, yeah, okay, that's nice, but how, what about you? If you were going to have an opinion, where would that be? And how do you know? What's it feel like in your body? This and that. So I would start there, trying to get her to um, be able to recognize, know, articulate her own experience. And, and what would your guess be as to where that therapy would end? Would, would she, what, how would that go? I mean, do you think you'd convince her to what do you think you'd accomplish with her, realistically? <laughs> well, <laughs> it does depend on what she wants more. Does she want more to be living in her own skin, really knowing her own experience, or is she on a ride? You know, I think, I, I actually don't ever know what someone should do because I don't know what you, you know, it looks, I mean, in the novel, she needs to get somewhere, and maybe that is the best path, and I really do actually believe that life is much more mysterious than I can understand, and so trying to help somebody just name what they really want, whether it's an obsessive love or whatever else would be, I guess, as good as I can get to. Well, I would say that Cress would definitely say it was love. Mm -hmm. And that she never really goes that far away from that position. No. Though she, you, the author, do. I, the author, do, yes. I don't, I, I feel that the thing that helped me grow up, and it sounds incredibly trite to say, was that I read that best-selling book, um, Dale Peck. Dale Peck, um, The Road Less Traveled, where he said, love is attention. And that, I feel, is exactly what Cress is not getting from Quinn. She's not getting sustained attention. Um, she's seeing him whenever he has this terrible craving to see her. But she, I mean, this is the very first time she even gets to talk to him on the telephone is when he proposes marriage. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> of course, this was in the pre-cell phone era. But I, th I, thought, I thought you were going to say that, that if you'd worked with Cress, you would have tried to encourage her to kind of get back to her life. And then I was going to ask Michelle, because I think that's what you sort of believe. I think you believe that Cress would have been helped by therapy and maybe. But on the other hand, you chose to, you chose to take the novelistic tradition of adultery rather than the, the healthy new age, you know, let's be therapeutic in the best way view of it. I mean, you know, obviously Anna Karenina could have used a therapist too. Um, probably used a train. The same for Emma Bovary. But and and you chose that. What it, what is it of the of the novelistic tradition of of extreme hurtling off the cliff rather than rather than healthy steps of recovery and sobriety in in matters of passion. Well, I have an answer to that. I mean, when Lori Weiner here read the book in draft, she said. Nothing really happens. You need something very dramatic to happen. And I bucked it a little bit, and I didn't give her the abortion or the suicide um, that she suggested, but I did. Um, I did realize that, you know, getting better in increments week by week and, you know, recidivism, um, I'd already gotten her 
really sick in increments, I didn't think the reader would stay with me going, getting better in increments too. It's just not dramatic. I think that's right. Plus it's also exciting to see really how far you go. You know, I, you. I, I found exciting as a reader. I mean, I think that's why we, we still read Anna Karenina too. You know, if, if, if current, you know, if Bronsky and Anna had sort of settled matters out there in the, su in the suburbs, would we really still be, I don't no, know. No. Um, now, what would you do, Michelle, the, Dr. Michelle, if, well, for our purposes, you're as doctor as we get here, what would you do with um, forgetting about being Cress's therapist? I now read differently now that middle age has, has occurred. And I find myself wondering, what would you do if you were the therapist of Cress's mother? <laughs> who also has a bit of a problem. You know, I mean, you've got a, a child who's into something potentially dangerous and self-destructive, and yet it's love, and you can't really get in there, you can't say, honey, I don't think this is a good idea, or you can say it, but I'm, I'm not sure it would help. You, yeah, usually I caution parents against coming down too hard because it often drives the child toward whatever danger the parents are warning against with even more conviction. But I like actually what Cress's mother does. It has no impact, but <laughs> she offers ways out. She offers some money. She's quiet about it. She, there's no shaming. I, you know, I think Cress is on this track and she's got to figure it out herself. And the way, instead of like from her mother's urgings to kind of go back to her own life. The way the lights start to come on is when you see other people respond. You know, little by, some people find out about the affair and they aren't, they don't condone it. They're not comfortable. And it's quite shocking for Cress to see that. And I think as a therapist, that would be something I would try and make something of, help her. Because Cress is- How would you do that without shaming, so to speak? Well, uh, Gently, <laughs> yeah. We would be practicing shame resilience. I, I think her resilience, her empathy, is a little stunted. And so, pra you know, standing in someone in uh, a person's shoes, trying to imagine, in what world does it make sense that uh, Dee Dee would say that, or in what world does it make sense that this person disapproves? How, you know, and. And also, you know, helping her feel what that is. I think she's very good at deflecting and just staying in this bubble, so. But her, for her mother, I, I would suggest she share what she, her hopes and dreams for Chris, offer these ways out. I, I'm not sure that there's a better way for a parent. There was a moment um, where Chris is, is thinking of going to visit her sister. And that falls through. The sister is involved in some rolfing therapy, Re rebirthing, rebirthing therapy. therapy. Yes. And and so she's not she's she she doesn't welcome Cress, although she previously had suggested a visit. It just the time wasn't good. So in that way, how much does chance and randomness play a part in this extremity? Do you think? Do you, if 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 her sister had come through with the invitation, how would that have made a difference? 
Well, it's interesting. She might have gone to Europe. Her sister was in England, and she might have just, you know, laid on her lumpy sofa and obsessed about Quinn the entire time. Uh, she might have gotten distracted. It's it's hard to know, but I think that. Cress has a problem with low agency. She's not a feminist heroine. She does not strike out on her own for what's good and healthy for, for womanhood. She's, um, she's sort of, for an intelligent person, maddeningly passive. And that's one of the things that gets her into trouble. Um, so the chance that Quinn picked her you know, the chance that her sister at a very important time all of a sudden says, you know, I've reached this point in my therapy and I'm not supposed to have any any to do with the toxic original family. No offense, that includes you. <laughs> um, so I think that I think the chance does does play a big a big role. Probably in all of our lives, though. Yes, I think so. How about the? I, I wanted to ask you about the epigraph to the book, which is which is love is trauma. Is that is that? A, I, I felt there was something Nabokovian about that. Perhaps a made up. Did you make up the source of that? I made up the other epigraph, but this epigraph came from my therapist. <laughs> The redoubtable Donna Paul. She's probably the therapist of three or four people in this room. <laughs> That's a great line. So she, she like you, is is not such a romantic. You would say no. And I had a I had a Jungian therapist who said that um, falling in love is a form of psychosis. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yes, I would. Psychosis is such a strong word, but, but I is would. There, is there such a thing as healthy love? What, what is this healthy love? I don't know. <laughs> you think? Is it kind of like it's there's like only human healthy love. vegetables? <laughs> I don't know. Healthy love. There's human love, and human love is so full of um, deceptions and projections and things you know things that fall away, and then you have to see what's in front of you and all the repairs that have to happen all the time. There's a um, uh, John Wellwood is a writer writes about uh, emotions and Buddhism, and he has this quote about uh, we all have in our hearts the idea uh, what ideal love is. We know what it is. We uh, we're going for it. We the problem is we're all human, so none of us are capable of either giving human love or well, we're none of us, and we so we also have to love other, uh, love other humans. So we can't give ideal love to anyone else, and we're going to have to love a human. We'll never get ideal love. So we have this. There's a conundrum, right? If we keep going in search of ideal love, everything we find that's possible to have will look like it isn't love. And he says this puts us in a mood of unlove. And so we walk around just not seeing love anywhere because we have this, we're looking for that and we're among humans, we're human ourselves. So a healthy love, human love. One knows those moods of unlove. Um, <laughs> Michelle, you, you have examples in the book though of, of secondary characters who do seem to find really reciprocal and intricate and subtle fits in their, in their lives. They do seem to find love in, in what you might call good love. Or they, they manage to work it out somehow. Workable love. Yeah, workable love, yeah. 
I think that's what I'd say about that Wellwood quote always, that's helpful to a lot of people in my practice because it makes you stay human, re realize I'm human, I can only find human love, I have to be the human lover of someone. It's going to be worked out, it's going to be messy, it's going to be, you know, and hopefully it'll nurture me enough to keep me in, you know, really nurture me enough to keep me in. But it won't, nobody gets to live in heaven, love heaven. <laughs> I have one final question for Michelle and then I think we should have some questions from the audience. But we're talking about these subjects and these people as if they were real, as if these were people who lived down the street from us. And I think people respond to Michelle's work with this, because it feels so natural, it feels so real. But of course I know from having watched you write it that it, there's so much, it, it's all art. I mean there's very little that, you did live on a mountain once and you did stay in your parents' cabin. And pretty much that's, that's a lot of what really happened. You know, so can you? <laughs> That's as much as I'll admit to, certainly. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the spirit of art and what what you think that that entails and what that will entail for fiction in the in the decades to come, as as things are changing? You know, will will books be as as predominant a force and and how does that change you as an artist in in your spirit of how you approach the work well at the risk of saying something that's been said 10,000 times you know reading is the most private act between an author and the reader and it's done one on one and that doesn't change no matter if you're having it trickle in through your earbuds or you're reading it on an illuminated screen it's still you know this intense um, personal one-on-one -on -one connection and that we all need and I think that um, you both touched on it earlier fiction takes us places that we then don't need to go you know we don't need to live next door to our ex-boyfriend Wuthering Heights does it for us <laughs> you know it's um, <laughs> And as Mona said, you know, I took this character down, 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 and then some more and some more to see how far she could go. To a, a real extreme. To a real extreme. And, and that's where, that's the good place. That's the good place to um, go to the extreme in a book. Um, <laughs> not in your life. And, and I have to say that, I mean, part of the spirit, for some reason it's been said in reviews this this is or isn't a cautionary tale as if that's a cheap thing but it's one of my hopes that you know there are some 28 year old women who will read this book and maybe think twice um, or maybe find a little air to think twice or something so that they don't you know go someplace that they don't need to go that's going to harm them that's going to take years out of their life when you write about a younger character, I, I know I said the last question, but just one tiny one more. Do you write about, do you write a book that you would have liked to have at that age? Yeah. Me too. I would have yeah. liked to have this book when yeah. I was in my 20s. But now it exists. <laughs> and there are still people in their 20s. And there's more and more coming. So <laughs> let's have some questions from an audience. I, I, I don't want to monopolize. Don't be shy. Yes. Um, as a reporter and a journalist, I, I, I'm still always thinking about. Can I give you? Sure. Yeah. Good. 
I'm still uh, always thinking about um, stepping into fiction for the first time. And this is such an, uh, a stimulating conversation. Um, I'm wondering, because I am so um, cynical about romantic love and have a hard... <laughs> okay. <laughs> and have, have a hard time um, imagining it and imagining it in the form of writing. Um, I'm asking the, the two novelists here, do you think I should just go at, plow ahead and try it anyway? <laughs> well, of course, there are other subjects. Yes? Yeah. But, but you want to write about love. Well, love is the great energy. It's the great engine yeah. in so many novels. And From even, the beginning. Even like in a recent novel, Americana or Americana by Adichie, is a wonderful trilopian love story, you know, in which she talks about race, Nigeria, culture, America, you know, England, uh, immigrants. She hangs all these sort of huge subjects on this love story. And, it, and you just turn the pages to find out, will they get together, you know, and you learn all this stuff while you're doing it. It's a, it's a marvelous device. It can be a kind of engine. Yeah. Sorry. I got, I'm lucky enough to be able to ask Michelle anything I want. So I'm going to ask Michelle, the doctor. Um, you you said that the therapist. You said that um, you never know what's going to happen, and life is a mystery. So you are not. You don't tell people what to do. Your your patients, but there have to be situations where you just know that this is a complete mistake. Uh, what this person is doing. So how do you handle that? There are times when I feel that somebody really should change something. And I might say, look, I just take it as my opinion instead of, so I might say uh, to someone who's spending all his money at strip clubs, <laughs> I get that you feel you're getting something out of this, but for me, I just worry about you will have so many fewer choices in the future, and these relationships aren't actually... So I, I would say, for me, this is how it lands with me. I practice in a very relational way, so I show up as a person with concerns, but I don't claim to know really what someone should do. I guess that's how I walk the fine line. Michelle. Well, what I was wondering, because uh, I find the characters so realistic in this book, and I've known you for a long time, and the, the question of autobiography has come up. I'm wondering if, if, you've, if other people might have seen themselves in your book, and if you've heard from any of them. For instance, the people who live up on the mountain. A deafening silence. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say, um, there's a town called Sparkville in the novel, small agricultural city, and um, somebody here tonight, John Bicklin, an old family friend, has a cousin who lives there who um, read the book and liked it, and, and, and liked what she saw in it, correct? Yeah, so there you go. That's that's a sort of secondhand response. That's the first one trickling down from Tulare County. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting question. Yes, sir. Um, I've got to say, hearing the title work, suggests that something is one of the worst 
get Working older together. that they're that they get maybe a more uh, a hard more hard view of romance. And to say you say you look at someone who's written four books that have all that involved romance, do you think the tendency will be to to uh, show a more sort of stamping nasty view of it, either for mechanical purposes, it turns out to write better that way, or because that's the other writer's experience? Oh, the question is, do writers as they write more and get older take a slightly nastier view of love? <laughs> um, more or less, but um, no, I mean, I, I take your question. I think, I say I'm not a romantic because I think that I've found personally, you know, a kind of love that's far more satisfying than always being you know, wondering, is he going to call? Am I going to see him again? Um, is there a relationship? Is he my boyfriend? I don't know, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happily married to a man who pays attention to me and brings me a cup of tea in bed every morning and talks to me and listens to me. And, and that, to me, is love this romantic love that that somehow you win because you get a man away from his beautiful wife which is one of the one of the things in my one of the patterns in my book it's that's that's something else that's some old family pattern or something that's 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 at work that's why Mona's first question is do I call this love I say it's not love it's some kind of working out that you have to go through to get to love maybe you want to say anything about that? Well, that is a common uh, theme in psychoanalytic writing and in therapy that we um, love isn't blind, it's visionary, and we actually pick the exact right person to work out our family of origin dramas with, and we pick that person hoping for a different outcome. <laughs> and, <laughs> and typically that doesn't really work. And I, yeah, I think it's common. I think um, I think we do that a lot, especially as younger people. And then, but that, you know, that's the when you sink into yourself and you figure out what actually is satisfying, then you can make different choices. But when you're just working on concepts of love, sort of the official truth about it that you get from your family and the hopes that you never were requited from mom and dad and all that, those guide us until we know what they are. Yes. Well, Janet. Well, they say the troubadours invented romantic love, absolutely. And should there be some correlation? It's, it's interesting that maybe it takes a mature writer who has been through both, you know, the whole thing to be able to look at high romance and see both the excitement and the, the shadow. Well, I like what you said about, you know, picking the, the people who are who contain echoes of one's original family drama and trying to get a different outcome and how that doesn't work out. One wonders whether maybe writing books and reading books is the way that one resolves those those primal yeah, yearnings. But 
I also think that uh, Janet brings up a really good point that the the conventional love story and the realistic love story really are at odds. And yeah. I think it's tricky to play with the two, to get the energy from the conventional one and use it in your realistic one. Of course, someone like Alice Munro is a complete artist at that. She can, she can get you wondering, are they going to be together? Are they going to be happy? And then she, the story will be about something completely different. You know, it will swerve off and it will be, um, I don't know about memory or just a weird time in a woman's life when she's in between places. It's really not about does she end up with somebody. Um, the endings are almost never satisfying in that old-fashioned romantic way in Alice Munro. No. But they're satisfying in a new way that she yeah. teaches us to appreciate in her own writing, I think. I agree. Marissa. Um, this conversation with their doctor or therapist is sort of like a funny reverse engineering because we're talking about the characters after the fact. But I'm wondering whether in writing the book you approach your characters with, with that degree of analytical thought or whether there's a sort of more intuitive pawing around as they move and behave and, and it's only after that you see who they are or you, you have a kind of analytical approach to them. That's a good question. Um, did everybody hear it? Um, that do I approach analytically um, or psychologically my characters, or do I just sort of muck around in them and, and do it intuitively? And and I, you know, the answer is both. I'm I've been so therapized for so many years, you know, twenty odd years. I can't help but bring a psychological approach, and yet at the same time, this character kind of defied psychology, and she even says at one point in the end that even getting this sort of brilliant explanation for, you know, that it's her family romance to get mom away from dad and and um, and have dad to herself and and it's very obvious her mother and the other woman have the same name. You know, she says that yes, that she can get that, but it's no match for memory. It's no match for the bright, bright shimmer of memory. What about Michelle? Do you find that when you consider those two elements that Marissa is talking about, the sort of analytic understanding of the characters and your sort of intuitive um, creation of them, does that occur in drafts? Are you more intuitive in the early drafts and you understand them better as time goes on? Yeah, I mean, sometimes in the writing of it, I get the psychological understanding. Um, in, in writing this book, I, I began to understand. I mean, people say, how did you come up with a character? And I always say, they're not fully formed. I have to go back to them again and again and again. And they get layers, and they get personal tics, and, and, and you know, hair color, and everything. And it's, it's like getting to know a person. You don't know anybody the first time you come up against them. And you need to go back to them again and again. And somewhere along there, in in that sort of great act of faith that is writing a novel that these characters are going to come to life and they're going to actually coalesce into a character. Sometimes there are psychological insights and sometimes I build a character with a psychological idea in mind that I might want to personify. 
I, I wish you were up here, so then I would say, how do you build your, your characters? But we'll <laughs> get to that. Sue. Um, so, and Michelle, when you hear other Michelle talk about the character, <laughs> and she says she really lacks empathy, does that, are you, oh dear, or, or do you see it? I mean, when you hear your character. Were you talking about the mother that lacked empathy? No, I was no. talking about Chris. Um, there's that moment where somebody says to her, um, you're committing adultery. She says, I'm not committing adultery. Yeah. I've broken no vow. He is, right? He's, yeah, point. yeah. Um, yeah, I don't consider her particular. I actually don't consider her empathic or empathetic. I think if she were, she wouldn't do what she did. I think that that's, I think Cress is, I, I guess they don't use this word anymore, but she's neurotic. She has some blind spots, you know. She has some spots where that aren't fully come to life. And if she didn't have those spots, this wouldn't happen. She's, she, her whole personhood is so intent on acting out this drama that she, she's not seeing it. She's not particularly conscious of it. So she's not going to be empathic about somebody else. I think too. I mean, yes, the drama, but the, his desire for her and the, you know, the sex and the hiking and all that is a huge aphrodisiac. So you talk about the engine and the energy. I mean, that's one reason I think I don't know how much sway I'd have with a patient <laughs> who was in that deep with something that was so compelling. I mean, it's quite. It has to kind of run its course, maybe. Yeah, Tom. I kept I keep thinking about the um, uh, love as attention and love as trauma, yeah. right? And how those two things fit together. Um, and the image of the guy giving his money all the way at a strip club—that was one one version of how they could fit together, I guess. But I, I that would have, be more on the trauma side. It would be kind of yeah, a bit, bit of bit of both maybe. But the, um, I, I have a therapist. I have a therapist. <laughs> Larry doesn't like that. Um, I, I don't uh, quite get that either. Could you explicate? No, please? no. Uh, later. The, um, th I have a therapist friend who. So, said that one of the things that she sometimes feels uh, is that you know she had she had a, a patient who was a guy who was in love with somebody uh, and happened to be married to somebody else and sometimes she just feels like she wants to say go for it um, really you're miserable go just your your disease is monogamy you should go you should just go for it and uh, and she knows that that's not particularly responsible thing to say uh, as a therapist so she doesn't but uh, I'm just wondering if, if you ever if you ever have that kind of conflict um, where you're where you actually are rooting for a little bit of trauma I, yes, <laughs> but I have, I mean, you know, maybe in a different way. I think in that case I would try and help that person own it and be direct and get out if they want out, actually. But I have been known to say to patients that they actually need to work on their ruthlessness and they don't have enough of it, you know, that they're, that, or somebody's afraid of being selfish, encourage them, so that happens. But I think more I would want somebody to own directly this, you know, their unhappiness. And it's interesting to think about in fiction because, of course, we're often rooting for the person to go for it. I mean, that the, the sort of example of the, of the narrative engine of, all, of erotic pursuit is, you know, on some level we're rooting for Humbert Humbert. 
And that's the genius of that novel is then you wake up and you realize, wait a minute. <laughs> but and part of, oh sorry. Go but we're all implicated in a certain way. In each other's stories, in each other's narrative. But some of therapy, certainly the work of therapy is to bring back to life what's kind of been suppressed or, you know, diverted from being direct and alive and engaging with the world in a real way. Not that Cress and Quinn seem so repressed. Well, they're not, uh, yeah, so let's add self-reflectiveness into the um, mix because they're not, they're not, they're not in a contextualized world. They're in this bubble and, and the self-reflection would include, I mean, that happens as the empathy, or, you know, starting to be more empathic. At the end of the novel when she meets the person from her past and she's thinking about the love she does have and how, you know, then she's in a completely different place. That is a, a world that has context and other people and my, uh, my impact on other people, not just my impulses, but also attention to impact and what that means and responsibility, some responsibility. I think we have time for one more or two more, one more question to Michelle. One last question. Well, I'll ask it then. Have you, do you, do you know what you're going to, do you, have you begun something new or is it just too soon? I know this new novel is just, just born. Um, well, it's just born, but it, it, it you I know, mean, it, was finished, it was finished a long time ago and, and, um, for the first time in 20 years, I didn't want to be under the yoke of a novel, so I wrote short stories for about a year and a half. And um, But lately, I started doing research for one novel, and then I started writing something for my own entertainment. And when I had about 40 pages of that, I gave that to Mona, who said, this is your next novel. So <laughs> she kind of knew the answer to that question. <laughs> so, um, so I'm busy. I'm busy. I, I'm sort of... Can you tell us a little about this novel? The new one? Yeah. Just the tiniest. It's, it's another church novel. Uh, James Land, my second novel, was about a church. And um, this one takes quite a different... The first line is, I've stopped going to church, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Michelle Nelson. Books. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.